okay, now what? Have you ever asked yourself that question? We have, I love, I love that honesty. Someone says all the time. Yes, we're, we're an interesting culture. We put a lot of weight on big, important days. Maybe days like um, a high school graduation day. Maybe days like a college graduation or the end of a project, the end of a job, or some of us, maybe the end of a career. Maybe it was a wedding date, a retirement date. We have these days that we look forwards to on the calendar, and maybe you've experienced something similar to me where I spend so much time and so much effort, and then you go through that day, and it's exciting, and it's cool or whatnot, but then you wake up Monday morning, and you got to ask yourself, what do I do now? Like, what, what, do, we, what do we do here? Um, there's, from the musical Hamilton, there's a line where they talk about the fact he says, and I don't know whether this is true or not, this is just what you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote when he wrote the musical, but he says, revolution is easy, but governing is harder. It's like when you, when you fight for something, when you go for something, but then when you finally get it, we have to ask the question, what do we do now? Well, I think this is where God's people are in Nehemiah chapter 8. So, um, there's your spoiler alert, cat's out of the bag. If you've got a Bible or a device or something, we are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8 today. We are in our series called 52. And before um, we jump in with studying God's word, I'd like to just pause and invite his spirit to speak to us today. So, Father God, we love you. And God, I pray that your spirit would just open our hearts as we sing words, as we read your, your word, the scripture. God, as we, as we tell stories, as we think about things, as we shake hands and high five at church today, God, we invite you to do with this time as you will. And so we put it in your hands, which is exactly where it should be in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like I said, we're in this series um, through the book of Nehemiah called 52. And I, I would just kind of like to set the stage so we're all on the same page if you're just joining us or maybe you missed a week or something like that. So this series is called 52 because it took 52 days in the Nehemiah project. They were going to build the walls around Jerusalem. And this is important because the walls had been torn down. Why do you need to rebuild walls? Well, because the walls had been torn down. And it comes at a chunk of books in the Bible, which um, I'm going to call the books of the return. Okay, If you want to read um, any kind of commentary or study Bibles or some stuff like that, they will call them the post-exilic, post means after, right? Post-modern, after the modern era. Post-Malone means after Malone. No, but uh, like the post means after, and then the exile is this watershed moment that happens in the story of the Old Testament, where the Babylonians walk into Jerusalem and conquer the city, which for how many, like for 1,500, 1,000 years, you couldn't do that. Nobody had taken Jerusalem because 
Israel's identity, and I would remind you of maybe you've seen this story before, um, is the story of David against Goliath. You've got a shepherd boy, and he's got the five little stones. He puts them in a sling, and he goes up against the giant. Um, and the way the Sunday school song says it is the giant comes tumbling down, right? He beats the giant as this small little person. And we actually use that to this day. We will talk about Goliaths. Like if I say the word Goliath in our culture, we think of something that's really big and really impressive and really large. And that's because this story is who Israel was. But here's the thing about David is if you're going to be a little shepherd boy who takes on a giant, you have to have God backing you up. Because what happens if you're the shepherd boy and you turn your back on God and say, don't worry, I got this, and you go up against the giant, you get squished. That's what happens, right? That's what happens. And so Israel has, throughout um, several hundred years, they had these guys called the prophets. And the prophets are constantly calling them to return to God. But Israel constantly turns their back on God. And what do we know about God? Is that at some point, with so many people, he will honor, as we say, no, I don't want it your way. No, I don't want this. No, I don't want you. At some point, God says, okay, have it your way. And he hands them the keys to the car and says, okay, Israel, if you got this, go for it. And then Babylon comes in and the giant, you know, runs over the shepherd boy. And they're carted off into exile. And then Babylon gets thrown down. And so shortly after that, they have Persia. And Persia says, okay, Israel, you can go back and return and rebuild. Because um, God was never going to be done with this story. Like he always said in the prophets, you guys might turn your back on me. But at some point, there's going to be a remnant. There will be a group that returns, and God never gave up on people. And so they come back to the land, and they got to restart all this stuff. And so you've got the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. So I'm going to go real quick through that so we're all on the same page. You've got um, this guy named Zerubbabel who builds the temple. And the way I say this in youth group, and it cracks me up and tickles my funny bone, is that Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple out of the rubble. So that's that's what he does, because you've got to rebuild the temple so you can worship God. And then you've got Ezra, and Ezra is a scribe and a priest. And what that means is as a priest, he is like God's representative to the people. He is pointing people back to God. As a scribe, that means he is a professional nerd. Like that is his job, is to read the text. And actually, because of the scribes, we have some of the best manuscripts and evidence for our Old Testament and for the Bible compared to any other documents that are even close to that time period in history because we had nerds who were willing to stand in the gap and continue to point people to Jesus. So that's my justification because I know that I am a Bible nerd and see, there's a place for us all in the kingdom of God. Well, so Ezra is um, trying to build the Torah, which are those first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And he's trying to build that into their hearts. As much as Zerubbabel and then Nehemiah are building the city 
Ezra is trying to build the people. So then Nehemiah comes, and in 52 days, they rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And all the people rejoice. It's like the Monty Python moment where they're all like, yay, like we did it. We rebuilt the wall. And I love some of the pictures from this story because there's some moments where um, Nehemiah's group of people, some of them have to play offense and some of them have to play defense. Like you got to have, when you go to work on the wall, some of them, they got to put the sword on the tool belt along with the trowel or their tools, right? So it's like you got to have your offense and your defense to build up the wall, but we're also going to watch out because there are these guys that are trying to stop the building. Like there's opposition to what God is trying to do. And so Sanballat and Tobiah, which are kind of the Lex Luthor to, you know, Nehemiah's Superman, they're the arch nemesis, and they invite Nehemiah, they say, come on down to have dinner with us, and they hire some bandits and people who are going to um, ambush him on the way down. And I love this line that Nehemiah says. He says, I cannot come down, for I am doing a great work. He says, I'm going to be focused on what God has me doing right now. And I just, that, that's just a little phrase. This is bonus. This isn't even in Nehemiah chapter 8. But this is a phrase that resonates with me as I live my life, and when there are distractions or things that pop up that would pull my heart away, I just remind myself, like, I'm doing a great work. I can't come down. I'm working on something, and God's got me focused on what he's doing in my life. And so I just love this story. They finish the wall, and there is much rejoicing, but then we got to wrestle with the question, what do we do now? Because we had that wall, we got it done, and there's a rallying point, everybody's excited, but you don't necessarily want to let that, that fervor or that faith or that movement of how you see God moving, um, you don't want to just let that go by, right? You have to strike while the iron is hot. And so the people of Israel, they're, they're wrestling with this question, um, and it starts with uh, chapter 8, Verse 1, it says, All the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. Now, there are lots of moments in the story of Israel where I'm going to open it up and be like, okay, so God is on Mount Sinai, and then they decide to build a golden calf idol. And I have to say, let's not do that. Okay, this is the bad option. So many times the nation of Israel will make some mistakes as God's people. But in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, we get to give them the gold star, the high five, and say, okay, this is a really good response. So they gather together in the square, um, and then they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now notice this, okay, for 15 years, Ezra has been in Israel trying to teach people God's word and call them back to what God would have for them. And how many times do you think those meetings are initiated by Ezra? Like he's the one who's saying, come to my Bible study, right? Come to, you know, church, come to this. But in this moment, they go get him. There's something in their hearts where they're ready. And maybe you've experienced this in your life. It's almost like, right, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. 
I've had, I've had books that people have given me and they have sat on my shelf for a number of years. And it's, it's not like I ever intend, right? Someone says, hey, Andrew, this book's really good. You should read it. And I'm like, okay. But I also just have a stack. We've established I'm a nerd, right? So I have a stack of books about that big I'm trying to get through. And sometimes I don't get to those books. And some of them I have come back to two, three, four years later, and it just, it hits my heart in the right way where all of a sudden it's almost like God gave it to me and then just left it there for me to come get when he needed it. When I was ready, when I needed that, when I was um, 16 years old, I had kind of a spiritual awakening and was really um, passionate about God. I grew up in church, and so when I was seven, I prayed the sinner's prayer, and I was like, Jesus, please don't send me to hell. Like, I really wanted to have that happen, you know, Jesus takes me to heaven. And then when I was 10 was when I got baptized. Well, then as a 16-year-old, there were so many teachings of Jesus that like at seven, when they were like, okay, now Jesus tells you be a good boy and stay away from all of these things. I was like, okay, I can do that. But then at 16, these things started to look a little more interesting. You know, like if I'm just being real honest, like all of a sudden, the Jesus lifestyle felt like it was going to cost me more. And I had to think about, do I really want to be a person of integrity? Because, like, money's pretty cool. Like, girls are pretty awesome. Like, what, what am I? And I really had to think through this. Like, what are my values? What am I going to do? And someone introduced me to a preacher out of Seattle and, and he was all over, you know, the Digisphere, podcasts and books and publishing, all kinds of stuff. And it just, it hit me at just the right time. And I would not be, I, I really do think I would not be a Christian today had I not found that uh, teaching, which was exactly what I needed at 16. And so all of a sudden, like, God used this moment in my life when I was hungry and trying to figure out what to do. And he capitalized on that. So there I was like driving to work as a, you know, 16, 17 year old. And I'm like podcasting sermons and I'm sitting there playing my Xbox and video games. And I have theology lectures like playing in the background while I'm doing this because I just was so hungry. And maybe you've had something similar. We're just at exactly the right time. God introduced you to exactly the right people to move you forward. Maybe you're at that place right now. Maybe you're about to be there. And as a church family at Dallas, we would love to be some of those people that invest in you and help you move forwards in your spiritual life. So this is where they are. They're asking the question, and they bring Ezra in. So then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, he read from it, facing the square, um, from early morning until midday. So nobody's going to complain about my sermon length, right? Because this one lasts from, like, you know, way early in the morning until noon. I will let you out before noon. Here we go. Um, and so they are in this, this section of this kind of, like, conference teaching thing. Um, and then in the presence of all the men and women who could understand, and the ears of all the people, they were attentive to the book of the law. Now, I know that all of us have been in situations where it's kind of like the Charlie Brown teacher. 
right? Like your body is present, but your mind has left the building, right? It's kind of like, but those moments when we're dialed in, when we're engaged and we're paying attention, well, why is that? Oftentimes it's because it's relevant to our life, right? Like if I'm just going to tell you all the random facts or I'm going to explain to you about some video game that you have zero intention of ever playing, right? Like you're just going to kind of tune it out and try to stay present maybe because you really like me or you really want to pay attention. But, um, and what happens here is because they were hungry for something because their souls were ready and because they needed it, they got dialed in as they had a three-hour study through the Old Testament. And I know for us, right, if we decided, Pastor Ben and I are like, okay, so next week we're going to start reading in Genesis. We're going to start at 9 a.m. And then hopefully at some point we will stop by noon. I know that many of you will suddenly have a very important birthday party somewhere to go to, right? I know that that's how that might go. But I think that's because for some of us, we don't always see the relevance. We don't always see the connection. And when you need the information, you go after it. And so I want to draw some parallels right here, okay? Because um, you can see I've got the references to the people of Israel. I've got that highlighted in blue um, on my text and in my notes up here. And that is because in the Andrew Brain color code, um, this is how this works, all right? I, I highlight in my Bible whenever I'm doing a deep study. And if we were to open to one of the Gospels or the New Testament, if we were to open to the book of Ephesians, you would find that I have also highlighted in blue all of the sections that are talking about the church, and like the disciples of Jesus, like what they should be doing. Because I'm going to draw an interpretive um, parallel. I'm going to say that I think there's a parallel between who is Israel in this moment? Well, they are God's people gathered around God's word as a community. And they're called to live it out. And then in Ephesus, right, uh, a couple hundred years later, we have a church. They are God's people shaped by God's word, gathered together to live that story out. And here's what I think, you know, 2,000 years later in Dallas, Oregon in 2022, as we sit in chairs or watch online, like we are God's people, shaped by his word, gathered together to live it out. And so for them, they're going to read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is their story, their foundational story. And that is our story. We're connected to that in a way. But um, at Dallas Church, we don't sit and read Genesis every single week, right? We're not going to jump in on that because for us, we have a different foundational story. And there's a symbol of it that's standing right, beside, right behind me on this stage. And we put a cross on our stage. We put a cross on our logo because the gospel, the truth about Jesus, the good news that God invites us into a relationship with him, that's our story. That's our foundation. And for the last several years, we've actually had at least one week every year 
where we preach on basically two things. The great commandment, where Jesus said, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And then also the great commission that we are supposed to be disciples of Jesus who then make disciples and build up other people in their faith. That's our marching orders. And so when we ask our question, and we have to ask, okay, what do we do now? That's where we're going to go. Pastor Ben calls it ground zero. Every single week we take communion and we remember the fact that Jesus died on a cross and rose again three days later and then invites us to live in that life, right? The good news is not, I've, I've talked to people before, I've talked to youth students, and sometimes they're, I'm like, what's the good news? They're like, okay, the good news is Jesus died for our sins. I'm like, hang on, you have to finish that sentence. Because someone dying, that's not good news. But the fact that Jesus rises again and that there is new life, and we are invited into new life to live as his people. Um, it sounds kind of weird when I say it this way, but some theologians talk about like we're invited to be the new humans, that we're going in a direction that is different from the culture at large. And we see lots of destructive patterns in people's lives, right? I don't, I don't have to dig very long for us to find that. And God invites us into something more. And that's our story. And that's the story we want to live. That's the story we want to be. That's the story I'd like us to keep in the forefront of our minds. And so um, for us, it is this story of the gospel and God's people were tied back to this story. So, so Ezra is teaching them, you know, they're, they're eating it up. They're trying to learn all about this and he doesn't stand alone. As the teacher, I love this uh, part in verse 4, and beside him stood, and then there's lots of names. I'm not going to read them all, um, except for this one, which I'm thinking about naming my next kid Hashbadana, because I just think that name's really awesome. So Hashbadana Bullock, I can get Joe on board with this, let's go. Um, but no, but so he's, he's not alone. Like Nehemiah has these guys backing him up, um, and then if we skip all the way down um, to verse 7, you also have another list of 13 more guys that have names that I will not read and butcher because I can't pronounce them. But you've got these guys, and then the Levites, which are that priestly tribe, they help the people to understand. So it's not just one person who stands up there and talks about what's going on. But actually, they then break up into little life groups in the middle of the Old Testament. Did you know there are life groups in the Old Testament? Here you go, like plug for Dallas Church life groups. They're on the lobby wall, join one, it's great. But they start these little groups where they are applying and really processing through and asking questions. And I just love that because God's word is always meant to be studied in community. We're supposed to be able to have conversations and dialogues about it, not just have, you know, one boring person named Andrew stand up and talk the whole time, like, but, but we're supposed to do this together and to share, not just that we read for our devotional time or have our Jesus time in the morning and then move on with our lives, 
but maybe we're supposed to start sharing this with other people in our life. Maybe you have good and safe people, whether they're Christians or not, to just say, hey, I was reading about this today. What do you think about that? I just open up the conversation. And I love the fact that they include the Levites who are then teaching the people. And this just runs counterintuitive to the stereotype that people have about religion. The stereotype people have about faith is that you've got um, people who aren't thinking critically and they're just following what a religious leader might be saying. That's like our culture will accuse religious people of being superstitious or not thinking critically. Well, the Hebrew Bible and in the Old Testament, they built education of building up people from the very beginning. Like, how progressive is that? This is 2,500 years ago. And they're building the understanding of everybody. And actually, it is when they stop to educate and to build up the people of Israel that they go the wrong direction, that they go south on this. And so here they are, they're getting, um, they're getting the teaching, and I, I love what Chuck Swindoll says about this. He says, they heard the Hebrew Bible, but they heard it through Babylonian ears. Because their culture and the lens that they had on it, that was all from Babylon. They had grown up in this world and this culture, and how often are we coming to the Bible, and we need to study this in community, process it together, so that we are reading it not just with American eyes, because we are affected by the culture that we live in. And so I, I, I love the fact that it is deeper than just the Bible nerds too, though. If you, if you skip all the way down to verse 13, it talks about how they empower not just the priests, but they empower the fathers of the households, the parents, the people who live in a network. They empower them to teach. And I just think that is so profound because we have a problem with the way that we do church in America. We have built way too much weight on the celebrity pastors or, you know, the Bible teachers. And, and it's just... It's coming, it's coming home to roost, guys. Like this, this is the strategic weak point that we've built into the way we do faith in the 21st century in America. And Satan is using that strategic weak point to pull people away from Jesus. And we just look at it in the news. Like you just see how many, you know, high-profile Christian leaders have had a moral failure. And the testimony gets hurt, but this is never the way it was supposed to work, where it's all built around that one person. So when I was 16, right, I'm listening to this pastor from Seattle. You know what happened three years later? So he had some character stuff. His church, like, disappeared overnight. Like 10,000 people, campuses in four different states, and it was gone. And... And I think that's just crazy, first of all, that we're like, okay, so since this guy can't do it, you know, church just can't happen. Like, what? Like, you know, God forbid, if anything happens, like if any bus hits anyone, like Dallas Church is still open the next week because this is so much bigger. Like, Jesus didn't get hit by a bus? Like, Jesus is still here? This has to be about so much more than just one person. And so when that leader, right, that Christian leader that really ignited my spiritual passion, 
when he goes under, people would come up to me. And so for the next like four years, I'm taking questions. As people are like, Andrew, do you still believe? Like, are you still on board with Jesus? And I had to go, yeah. Because I can tell you the pastor of the church that I grew up in when I was seven years old and just listening to sermons, he is still preaching same church, same pulpit, right? Married to the same woman, like same character. And I had so many people in my life like that. It wasn't built around one guy. It wasn't built around one person. And so, yes, like my heart was hurt, but my faith kept going. And I think that as the church in America, we need to work on undoing that a little bit. We need to work on empowering our teachers and, and lay members and just like normal, ordinary, everyday people that come to church that God can use. Because the Holy Spirit that is in me is not any different than the one that's in you. And yes, I read maybe a book or two more. Like, right, like, yes, I, like, am a nerd, and there's a place for me. But I know people that are, you know, they're so much better and more effective disciple makers because they haven't been to seminary. Like, they, they get how everyday people think, and they, they live it, and they live it out. And I just think we can do better than that as a church. Like, we can empower each other to make a difference. And so I will, I will skip down to the section in verse 13 where it talks about the heads of the father's household. So they empower all these people with a household. Now, we do not live in the ancient Israel patriarchal society, okay? Like we, we do some cultural things differently. I remember when um, I was talking to my dad about um, when I wanted to start dating. And I was like, okay, I wanna, I wanna start dating. What, how am I supposed to do this? And he was like, well, the Hebrew biblical model is, you know, and he's going back. And I'm like, yeah, but the Hebrew biblical model is that you hand me a small business when I turn 18 and you're not doing that right now either. So, you know, what are we, what are we actually gonna do? So it's, it's different, right? We live in a different culture. Um, and I, I've started to think and to pray and to read um, in terms of thinking about a household, maybe we need to rethink about our network. Like, where has God placed you? Who is in your life? Where do you live, work, and play? Who is around you? And maybe you are a leader. Just in that, maybe you're the head of that household. Like, maybe you have influence in your place of work. Um, I have permission, I'm going to brag on a member of our congregation, Joyce Garland, is a teacher at uh, La Creole Middle School. And I think Joyce just does an excellent job of being a disciple maker, someone who prays for, cares about, and pours into the people on her team in the place that she works. And she just does a great job of that. She leads one of our life groups, and some of the people that come to that life group, they also work at that school. And I also know that we have, as a church family, people placed all over. And I wonder, like, what, what is God doing in our life as a church, but also your life as a person, 
Like, where has God put you where you can make a difference, where you could be that person that disciples others, that shares Jesus? Well, I love what happens in this part of the story. See, the heads of the father's household, they get together, they're, they're studying, okay, and they, in verse 14, they found it written that the law of the Lord, um, that the people of Israel should dwell in booths. Okay, now that sounds weird for a second. And I'm, um, what it is, is there's this feast in um, the history of the Bible where they would live in tents or temporary shelters. Another super Bible word for this is tabernacles. And if you want to call something a tabernacle, that just makes it sound really spiritual, right? Tabernacle. But, but it is the feast of Sukkot. And um, Orthodox Jewish um, practitioners still do this to this day, right? Where they take one week and they set up a temporary shelter like this. Some of it, it's on their roof. Some of it, it's in the backyard. And I actually have a friend who decided to do this this week because um, he was like, I'm going to practice the Feast of Sukkot. And I was like, that's so great because I'm preaching on the Feast of Sukkot. Here we go. Uh, and they live in these temporary shelters um, because they're remembering this time period when Israel was wandering in the wilderness, like an object lesson. And maybe you've done object lessons. We like advent calendars around here. Uh, maybe you've done, they're called like resurrection cookies. I've done that with kids where you bake it and then the marshmallow disappears as you bake the resurrection cookie. And then when you open up, you're like, the tomb is empty. There's no marshmallow in here. And as a little kid, I was like, whoa, that's cool. But object lessons, they, they matter. And what I love about this passage and what I think we can take away from this, because I'm not going to tell us that what we should do is all go pitch tents in our backyard, right, and live without Wi-Fi for a week, although that might be good for some of us. But, but what I love about this is that they read what they should do and they go do it. Like they look at what does it say in the text? What kind of people should we be? And it says, well, you should be people that live in booths and do that. And they say, okay, let's do that. And here's what I know, okay, about the Great Commission, Great Commandment, okay? Love God, love people. If we really take that back to the Greek, it says, love God, love people. If you translate that into Swahili, right? You take it across the world. It says, love God. Love people. And that's our marching orders. That's what we're going to do. And so I think in the middle of this, so let me bring it all the way back to the question, okay, now what? Okay, now what? As we approach a new phase of life, maybe it's marriage or retirement or a new job or a new position or some form of something that's changing in your life, what do we do? We go back to square one. We follow Jesus and we obey what this word says. We do what the gospel says. We live it. We live it out. Um, this is Dallas Church's birthday month in October. 15 years ago, Dallas Church was launched. And I was not here when any of that early stuff was happening, but here's, here's what I can imagine. I can imagine that when we finally got 
to that very first service where we met at um, the elementary school and the church. You know, finally, this dream that so many people had had, so many people had worked for, and then people from the community came and showed up. Well, then Monday morning, we had to go, okay, now what do we do? And the mission is follow Jesus, right? Love God, love people, make disciples. We're going to obey that. Well, then, years later, um, we got the building, and we moved into this facility. We bought it from Trinity Lutheran. And as we move into this facility, there's a question, right? Okay, now what? Because that's not the end of the journey. That's just the very beginning. Well, we love God, love people, we make disciples, we follow Jesus. And then there's this really crazy thing that happened in 2020. I don't know if you know about it, right? But, but then in July of 2020, we reopen after being shut down. And then we have to ask, okay, now what? Well, we love God, love people. Make to, do you see where I'm going with this, right? So, so for you, when we are disoriented, when we're in a new phase, when we don't know where we're going next, let's go back to the foundation. We follow Jesus, right? We love God. We love people. We make disciples. Let's be that type of church. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. We invite you to do what you will with our lives. God, we invite your spirit to challenge and to change us, uh, to prick and to prod and to just move us where you would like to. God, I pray that your spirit would guide us um, on Monday, on Wednesday, on any day of the week, God, and that what we do together here um, would, would matter. We'd carry it forth and share it with others. We trust you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.